I want to speak to you this morning on four things God wants for us. Remember that little, those prophetic words about compassion and God's care and His kindness? Uh, whenever anybody talks about, about economics, it's about, oh boy, here we go again. They want something from us. I want you to see that God is not primarily a father who wants to extract anything from us. Why would that be? Because he doesn't need anything from us. And uh, so I want to speak, given the very tough uh, economic conditions uh, in the world, how many of you are finding there's more months left at the end of your money? Yeah, something like that every now and then, uh, whether it's pocket money in university or just generally we're having to make adjustments to our budgets, we're having to simplify a little. And some of that can be a little tough. Uh, we forget the times, there were times where we, we really were struggling and then the economy moved the other way. And, uh, you know, we uh, experienced more margin, abundance, and, and uh, that's the truth of life this side of eternity. We have these ebbs and flows of resourcing. So I am carrying almost zero burden around giving because I know this is a generous church. I know that you people love God and His mission in the world. Uh, but I really do feel a mandate from God to anchor us in, uh, in His sufficiency and in His goodness. And I want to speak to you from a, a, a passage, and it's kind of pastorally motivated. I'm coming to care for you. I'm coming to uh, strengthen you. I'm coming to nurture you. And it comes out of that beautiful, it's a heart of compassion. And uh, the truth is that this would apply for the spectrum of everyone who's in the room, whether you're rich or poor, uh, fully employed, unemployed, underemployed, uh, or retired. The bottom line is, uh, I want you to experience God's goodness and His love through this message today. So we're going to preach or, or speak from, uh, both speak and preach, from, from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus, and he's pastoring this church, and he's kind of coaching Timothy on how to do this well. And some of his coaching is exactly about what we're going to be speaking about, and I'm borrowing from, from that, that discourse, uh, Timothy and this church. And uh, there were some really dangerous things happening in Ephesus, which was a major commercial uh, center at that time in the first century. Uh, you know, all kinds of uh, economic inequalities were in play like they are in our, in, in our reality. Uh, and also with it, a whole lot of charlatans doing the rounds. Uh, and he even mentions the, some, some among you, you know, who, who imagine that godliness is a means to gain. That was kind of whack there. 2,000 years ago, the prosperity gospel was, was in play. Uh, the opposite to the prosperity gospel is not the poverty gospel. The, the, the biblical answer is seeing God for who He really is. And that's what I want to do. We don't want to live in a, uh, you know, between this and this. We actually just want a higher view. And uh, hopefully this will help you. So he launches in, in verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
with uh, these words, and I encourage you to just follow on the screen or in your Bibles. Uh, okay, here it is. First Timothy 6 from verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For you brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We go down to verse 17 because the next passage is all about Paul just talking to Timothy. He says, you've got to flee all of that stuff, Timothy. And then he goes in verse 17 and he says, command those in the congregation in Ephesus who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. Father, I invite you by your spirit to, to magnify your name through the powerful truths in this text. We want to place our lives under the authority of your word and ask you to wash over us, renew us, assure us, uh, yeah, win our hearts to the content of this passage, we pray, in your name. So a key verse in, in this passage is this, it's like a life verse for me, where, uh, where Paul is writing and he, he's, he talks about the call to put their hope in God. And this now describes the kind of God we're to put our hope in. If you don't have a right view of God and you're just hoping in God, you, it's like emergency services. This is, this is a relationship we call to with Yahweh. And he's described as the one who richly provides us with everything. What are the next two words? For our enjoyment. Four things God wants for you, but God is for us in Christ. I want you to see this. He is for us. And added to that, He's not out to pleasure-proof our lives because He's for us for our enjoyment. He wants us to enjoy everything that comes from His gracious hand, whether it's in abundance, or, uh, in plenty, or in tough times. So here's a thing I want to warn us against, which shrinks our view of God. It's a, it's, a, it's a philosophical term. It's called limited goodness. Now I've got your attention. You should be more excited about the Scripture. Now, a little bit of philosophy. It's, it's, this, it's this concept in limited uh, uh, goodness. Let me describe it to you. Do you remember as a kid, Mommy's been in the kitchen. Mommy has baked these beautiful crunchies and put chocolate on. And uh, she spent the day baking, and she's got like four big jars full of crunchies, chocolate crunchies. I mean, just with baroni on top, bar one, on top. And, and then the kids are all in the, in the, in the lounge, and the, the, the 
what do kids drink? The juices are out and everything. And, and, and then it's, each kid is taking one, and you get to that critical moment in the feast when there's just one crunchy left. Marina, I can see it's a reality in your world. How many of the moms can identify with this? And the kids face what is called a moment of crisis. It's trauma. Because there is right in front of them this concept of limited goodness. One crunchy left. There's not enough enough to go around. Oblivious to the fact that mom has got all these jars of more biscuits. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and for their own good, she's not bringing out anymore for now. But mom is not broke. Mom is not short on what is needed at the right time for her kids. Not only that, the kids don't know that mom is married to the guy who owns the Baker flour mills in South Africa. I'm just exaggerating. The concept of limited goodness is we think that for our needs to be met, we need to get some kind of slice of all the goodness that is available. And we want our measure of that. And sometimes we watch others getting a slice of the goodness and we think, oh, we're down to just that amount of goodness left. There is no such thing in the being of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as limited goodness. Over and against that, we have this verse in John chapter 1 and verse 16 that says, from His fullness. Say that out loud with me, please. From His fullness. There are no limits because the fullness of God is an ever-eternal flowing stream of goodness. And God has found a way in Jesus to bind us to His goodness forever through the grace of the gospel. Just digest that for a moment, dearly beloved. Digest that. Think about it. Which really means everything changes in the way we think, whether it's tough times or abundance, the bottom line is where we start. And we've got to get rid of some of the, and limited goodness has many layers and there's all kinds of versions of it. And, and, uh, uh, but we are going to be embarrassed because this from his fullness, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Some translations say one blessing after another. Other translations say grace replacing grace. Why do the translations all differ? Because the, 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 the translators are grappling with this concept of yesterday's grace is not needed today because there's more grace today because God is a giving, ever-flowing stream of goodness. He was that, he is that, he will always be that. Even Paul has a glimpse of this when he, when he talks about being filled with the fullness of God. God wants us to be full of this revelation. And he speaks about that in the ages to come. He will show us the incomparable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ. 
It might be that we're looking for goodness in a very na narrow bandwidth, which is economic, financial, job satisfaction. I want to say all of those things are important. They're not to be despised, but they are not ultimate. God wants us to lift our gaze and see in this world with all the world is broken, more broken now than ever. And I'm a very young man at only 68, but I can tell you the world is, is crazy. And that's why we need a higher view of God. And so let's just plow in here four things, and I want to put the word in there God genuinely wants for us from this passage that flow from his big, generous, good heart toward us. And I know some of you are thinking, oh yeah, I know you're setting me up. You're going you're gonna to ask something from me. No. I'm not, I, honestly, as I stand here, I don't, have to, I don't need to do that because I'm dealing with the, the currency of goodness and true riches. So hang on. Number one, God wants to upgrade your personal asset register. God wants to upgrade your personal asset register. That point of some were saying godliness is a means to gain. He's coming and saying, no, godliness with contentment is great gain. And that Greek word, great, Greek word great gain is mega wealth. God wants to upgrade our asset register. We think what we own in property or cars or shares and, you know, or just... The basic, we think that that is our asset register, and God is saying, no, godliness, the God-centered life that produces an inner contentment, folk, you, there's no money that can buy that. There's no money that can buy you God at the center of your life. It comes as a gift. We weren't even looking for him, and God breaks into history in the person of his son because he comes to seek and to save lost people who've got misguided notions of what really wealth is about, and he comes in Jesus, and he anchors us to Jesus, and he says, <clears throat> the God-centered, Christ-centered life with its accompanying contentment. Notice it's not godliness and contentment. It's godliness with contentment. The God-centered life is supposed to generate a contentment in our hearts. Paul himself said, I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. Contentment is the product of Christ in our lives, strengthening us, vaporizing the lies that come into our minds about what, about what true wealth is. And so godliness with contentment, godliness, this God-centered life, is more than morality. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't mix with boys who do. That's not godliness. God himself, this ever-flowing fountain of good at the center of your life, godliness with its, it's not, contentment's not a friend of godliness. It's the fruit of godliness. And here's the beauty we sang about it. This grows in our lives. This contentment grows, not through the pursuit of a process, but through the presence of a person. Jesus Christ himself is the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ himself is the hope of glory. And so the big point 
is that you are richer if your faith is in Jesus Christ and you reconcile to God. You are richer right now than you could ever imagine. Our problem is our finite minds can't comprehend how wealthy we are. That's why in the ages to come, he has to show us the incomparable riches that we have in Christ. Studies have found a very weak correlation. This is Tim Keller, who we honor. He's gone to be with Jesus. We honor him as just such a rich source of, uh, of gospel truth to the church. Studies find a weak correlation between wealth and contentment. I noticed this in the people that have, we've been so fortunate to have serve us, domestic workers. You look at the income disparity and and our domestic workers sing way louder than we do. They seem to be way happier, particularly if they're Christians. It's like remarkable. So this notion of wealth is not a correlation between wealth and contentment. And the truth is, the more prosperous a society grows, the more common is depression. Depression isn't always related to that, but... And after basic needs are met, the things that human thing, beings think will bring fulfillment and contentment don't. So in its face, let's just put this concept of true riches on steroids. Come on, come on, think about it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. Where? In the incarnation, in the life He lived, in His death on the cross. He took the debt that we owed on the cross, Absorbed in himself the punishment that we deserved. And the great exchange took place. Our sin was placed on him. And through faith in him, the risen Christ, who was raised for our justification, we receive his very own righteousness. My friend, money can't buy that. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now thieves know how to make people poor and steal. This is the ultimate goodness of God that comes to the most undeserving and says, you don't have to break in here. This is a free gift that comes from my generous hand. And so finishing this point, I mean, just think about it. It's not just justification. It is glorification. But by the way, you might not feel glorified right now, but you have it. Romans 5, whom he Justified, present continuous, can never be happened again. He's justified, it's happened. He also glorified. So right now, Rigby Wallace is glorified. I'm 68, but I look in the mirror and the hairs that grow out of my ears from time to time, I have to say, cut that one, do this, do that. I, I look, I, am, I don't, do not have a glorified body, but in the bank I have a glorified body. In the eternal assurance of God, I have that. And so I have adoption. I've got the Holy Spirit indwelling me. I've got a union with Christ that, 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 that is real through communion. It's not just tick-off union. I am, I'm communing with Christ. I have this daily fellowship. So Jonathan Edwards said this in a sermon he preached as an 18-year-old on Christian happiness. A bit of a paraphrase. There are three reasons why any Christian can be completely happy and content. First, your bad things will turn out for good. Yeah, isn't that fantastic? If God is with you, then Romans 8.28 says he will find a way to walk with you through it so that even in the bad things, even the bad thing, 
bad things will in many ways have good effects on your life and on your heart. Will you believe that with me today? Right now, while we're going through all this difficulty, would you believe it, that God can turn this for good? We can become more Christ-like. We learn contentment a bit more. We, we, we stop whinging and whining around every single interest rate thing. It's, it's tough. We're not minimizing, but I'm just saying there is somewhere to run to. And then Jonathan Edwards says, second, your good things will, be, will never be taken away. What good things? Well, you're adopted into the family of God. The Holy Spirit has been put in your life and eventually is going to transform you into a being so glorious, something far greater than your aspirations of anything you can even imagine you will be. These things can't be taken away ever. So your good things will turn out for good. For, you know, your bad things will turn out for good. Your good things can never be taken away. And finally, I just love it. The best things are yet to come. Paul lived with that when he said, I see imminent death, torture, or imprisonment. When I said, it doesn't bother me. Why? Because even an early, tragic, and painful death is not ultimate. It wasn't his final destination. We're richer than we could ever imagine. Okay, that's the first point. Take a pause. Glory in that. Terrible when you've got to blow your nose with a mic on. My wife is going to rebuke me when I get home. She's going to say, how can you do that? <laughs> Secondly, God wants to protect us from being trapped in the wrong cycle. Notice, this is what God wants for us. He wants to upgrade our asset register. Now, he wants to protect us from being trapped in the wrong cycle. Right now in South Africa, those cycles are rampant, particularly when we, our nerve ends, our economic nerve ends are feeling like some of the tensions and the pressure. Look at, look at this. And God's coming to us like a, a loving father, a loving mum, wanting to protect us. And how does he do it? He warns us. Uh, how many of you remember those times when your kid was just starting to walk? or your grandchild right now, is, and, and, the, and the stove is on or the heat is on, and you say, don't touch. You, something like that. Eh? What would you say? Hot, hot. You should hear yourselves. I'm going to get all the recordings and play them back to you. But focus is true. We need to be warned whether we're rich or poor. Rich people think money is going to solve all their problems, and poor people imagine it. Both are a trap, and they're a lie. They don't. You've got way bigger problems than just economic realities. That, so when we understand what our true riches are, everything gets resolved at a higher level. Listen to how he warns us in his love, in his compassion. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Please don't go there. That's what a good father says. Hot. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. At this point, we're more vulnerable now than we realize. Do you know that we can be trapped by a wrong view of money and not even know it? So you want to do a little test with me? Shall we do the, is money a power in my life test? Shall we do it? Okay. You guys are, you're supposed to, like, 
think, where's this guy going? But you said, yes, I'm going to get it. You don't have to raise your hand or answer anything publicly. This is designed just to give you some insights. How do you know you're under money's power? Glad you've asked the question. When we find ourselves talking about it all the time. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're speaking about it all the time. I have to watch myself. As a matter of fact, I don't know anybody who doesn't have to watch themselves around this issue at varying degrees. Secondly, we exaggerate its power. Thirdly, when it controls our choices, like you've got 10,000 rand in the bank at the end of the month, should I buy the new TV? When the bank balance becomes the thing I reference to make the choice, and there's not a sense of union and communion with Christ around those things, and remember, he's not out to pleasure-proof our lives. You might want to buy the 5,000 rand, and he might say, do you buy the 7,000 rand one because it'll last longer, and it needs to have those features for the kids' video games. Okay, the kids are going to love me at the moment. My point is, we can... Think that every choice we made economically is just governed by our bank balance. And some of the things, you don't need like special permission. I love the story of the, the guy who was so wanting not to offend the Lord or disappoint him. So he gets up in the morning and he says, Lord, today, such a great day. Should I wear the blue shirt or the red shirt? And the Lord said, wear any shirt. I'm your father, not your mother. Folk, you're under, you're under the power of money when it shapes our identity. 1929, in Wall Street, people jumped out of buildings because when they watched the share price go through the floorboards, they confused their network, net worth with their actual worth. They thought they were what they were worth. You are infinitely more valuable. You are not redeemed by corruptible things such as silver or gold, but you and I are redeemed by the precious blood, spotless, without blemish. Money can't buy that. You are way richer in Christ through the gospel. And so look at these warnings. He says, uh, the warnings come. Uh, you can't keep what you gain. He says, people who want to get rich, you, you could get rich in this life, but you're never going to keep it. You came naked into the world, and you're going to go naked out of the world. And while you are pursuing money in an illegitimate sense, where it's your preoccupation, you will, in, you will encounter powerful temptations. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. God's trying to protect us in His compassion and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's disproportionate desire around money. And if you set your heart on money, you expose yourself to many, many traps and cycles. Some, he says, you may wander from the faith. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. Jesus talks about seed that is choked by thorns and thistles in the Gospels, and he describes these thorns and thistles or the worries of this life 
and the deceitfulness of wealth. God wants to rescue us, so he teaches on it. And the desire for other things, which in the 20th century is bigger, better, faster cycle. He wants to protect us from that. And then he says, you will experience great sorrow. Some people eager for money have pierced themselves with many griefs. And folks, just to say this, money is not evil. It's neutral. Money taken by the scruff of the neck and subordinated to God's purposes is a great servant. Money should be a servant. It should never be a master. It's a terrible master. Okay, thirdly, God wants to coach us toward joyful economic maturity. Where do you get this, Rigby? Ah, it's very clear there. Watch there. He says, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world. So probably in this congregation, you've got the spectrum of rich and poor. In Cape Town, we've got that. But in the main, we would be probably in the top 10% of earners in South Africa in terms of the whole macro thing. So just to give context, in the Ephesian church, Paul is saying, command those who are rich in this present world in our present context, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So you say, where's the maturity thing there? No, it's so beautifully inferred. What, what he's saying is he's wanting to move us from being arrogant about what we have and hoping in wealth, especially the rich, the haves, to being humble and hoping in God. Folk, that is a journey and it is a mark of maturity that we're humble around what God has entrusted to us. And even in that season of abundance, we're still hoping in God trusting in God. Our confidence is in Him. It's not in our bank balance. It's not in the nice, shiny new car we've got, which can... You know, men go through a transfer of personality when they get into a new car. <sighs> Suddenly, they feel better than everybody else in the world. Kind of a human thing, I guess, for men. So, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there is something about moving from being a child to being a weaned child. In Psalm 131, Keller uh, brings this out, where, and, and he says this, this is a metaphor for spiritual maturity. On the one hand, we have a child on the mother's breast drinking. What, is, what, what are the sounds you hear when a child is not drinking on the mother's breast? Okay. Was that, a, was that appropriate? Better than the sneeze. I'm doing weighing and sneezing. I'm not going to go further than that. Okay, here's the point. Or when the child is on the breast, it's getting, it's demand feeding, it's mom is just there to serve this desperate, crying child. The grace is flowing one way. Immaturity. And then uh, the psalmist describes the wean child like a weaned child, uh, I have quieted and stilled my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. See, the child that is unweaned, that's still on the breast, is so 
focused on what the mother can give her. The weaned child is fixated on the mother, on her, on God, on his goodness. A mark of maturity is moving and hopes in her goodness at the appropriate time she'll always be there, but not demand feeding all the time like you're there for me. No, we can be those who are pouring love back to God. And so the point is right now we're being transformed. That's the work of the gospel. From being me-centered, me-focused, to being these that are, that, are, that are humble, hoping in God, because there is never a shortage, this uh, ever-flowing stream of goodness, we can still hope in Him. Last point. God wants to secure for us the best possible returns. Not a teaching on giving. Once you see the for us part, because... When grace starts to flow us, yes, down the road, there are, uh, there are wonderful, uh, beautiful teachings we can do on, on giving, but it's what God wants for us. Let's just see where we are because we're landing on the last point. Number one, God wants to upgrade our asset register. Number two, He wants to protect us from traps and dangerous cycles. Number three, He wants to mature us economically so we're not just demand feeding all the time. And fourthly, he wants us to secure the best possible returns by investing offshore. Now, I want you to see the, the heart behind all of this. Command those who are rich in this present uh, life to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. No teaching on giving or emphasis today for us on giving. What you want to see is this. In this way, they will lay up treasure. Next two words. For themselves. Jesus in the Gospels says, teaching his disciples, he says, do not lay up for your tre treasure, yourself treasures on earth. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust and thieves break in and steal. He said, lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven. Uh, Paul writing to the Philippians says, around economic, his needs being met by these people, he says, Hey, I'm not looking for anything from you. It's not about me getting anything from you. This is what I'm trying to tell you. It's I'm looking for that which may be credited to your account. Fuck, I want you to see this. God is not needy. And he wants us to know even in the midst of difficulty, every good thing we do in the gospel for his namesake is not for the mission only. It is for ourselves. For your own soul's sake. Not a heaven or hell issue. Notice what it says. As a firm foundation for the coming age. I've looked at all the commentaries. It's very difficult to know why this foundation is there. There's a whole spectrum of what is this foundation for? Does heaven need a foundation? No, it doesn't. It's a foundation for me, there's something about me that is credited to my account. There's some kind of correlation, and all kinds of guys suggest there is in the ages of ages, new expansive jurisdiction of God's purposes across the cosmos. Did he just create all of those, those universes? Is this, is this the prototype? What happens on planet Earth? Are we going to be rulers and, and uh, leaders over cities and planetary systems? Just don't let your imagination go too wild. My point being is that God is saying to us, 
You can't take anything that you have in this life with you. But you can send it on ahead as a credit for future reward, for future gains. I mean, it is ridiculous. <laughs> and he just says three ways that this happens. This isn't a call to give. Three ways it happens is when you do good in the world, when you put grace back in the world, when it flows from you, when you, when you become rich in good deeds. In other words, not just giving, but you're rich in good deeds. You are getting personally involved. And when you are liberal and generous, he says, when he brings those three things together and he says, this is the picture of grace flowing from us to others, but for your own good. That you, and then he lands it in this beautiful sentence, that you may like, take hold of the, of the life that is truly life. My friends, we're richer than we could ever imagine. We're more vulnerable than we are probably aware. What was the third one? But brain dead. We are being transformed from one degree of glory, but we describe what it looks like. You don't become less, uh, uh, you, you, as you mature, you become less demanding and you become more at ease in your relationship with God. And fourthly, you, you learn to live it out in a way that ultimately is for the good of others, but more ultimately for your own good in the ages to come. I wish I had time to tell you some stories of people I've just been with lately who've lost everything. And God broke into their lives, and I'm watching the journey from a guy who owned 23 fruit farms in South Africa, lost everything. He sat on my patio this year, and his life, I see light in his eyes. He has found true riches. He goes on hikes in the Andes and in Spain, and he goes along and he just sits with people and he tells them stories of the goodness of God. He has found true treasure. But in his case, he had to lose it all. And I could, this man did need to lose it all. He's one of my dearest friends. He texts me every now and then just to tell me what God is doing in his life. I want us to realize as tough as it is now, he lost it by crisis. We all can feel the pressure just because of the, the currents we swim in right now. But God is enough. He wants us to start living in and out of this amazing wealth that we have in Jesus. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he is rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, through the cross, might become rich. Is that helpful? Over to you, Matt. Come on up here. The only reason I preach longer than, than 10.30 is because he took so much time just before that. <laughs> Nothing unusual. Let's stand together. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge God's help this morning. Oh, Father, as we sat under your word, it's just felt like we've been in your classroom of the godly life, that you have a curriculum for us as your people that leads to maturity. And it is undoubtedly your will, Lord, that you're getting our attention in this day and age around money and, and where we find our security and our identity and our maturity. And Lord, we're grateful for this word. Lord, we didn't tell Rigby what to preach on. He just felt this was on your heart for us this morning. And we just want to say thank you, Lord, 
might we might we grow <laughs> while we enter into the joy of this life, the godly life with contentment that you have for us. And might we see as your people on the horizon the joy of what's waiting for us as we do so. We pray this in your precious and wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Bless you. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Riggs. Thank you, Sue.